It's the 13th of July, 2018. This is the Room Now Weekend Review. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com. This week we're going to be talking about disappointing results with an anti-IL-23 drug, surprising outcomes for those who have inflammatory back pain, and sort of the fate of outcomes in several disorders that will be surprising to you, the rheumatologist. Also want to give you a reminder about regional meetings in rheumatology that you should attend. I'll tell you about that at the end. At the top we have a study from Canada. This is from uh, John Esdale and Diane LaCalle's group that did a population-based study in Canada that looked at the monitoring of uh, hyperlipidemia in um, RA patients in controls. So they looked at over 5,000 patients in both groups uh, and showed that, not surprisingly, both groups were not very good with regard to um, monitoring for hyperlipidemia, but that RA was in fact less than that seen with uh, the, the general population. This is a reminder for us to be involved in the comorbidity, ma comorbidity management. Um, and although the study came from uh, primary care, ordering of tests, the same can be, has been seen in other studies by rheumatologists who do monitoring. Again, this is a big issue in our population and it's probably not being attended to. An interesting meta-analysis of, of, of multiple studies that looked at the associations between non-neurologic autoimmune disease, of which there's many, uh, and its association with psychosis revealed some surprising results. Surprising? Real? I don't know. Um, what they found was that there was an overall association between psychosis and non-neurologic autoimmune diseases with a 26% increase in, um, in such patients uh, and mainly an increased risk for developing pernicious anemia, pemphigoid, psoriasis, celiac disease, and Graves' disease. Again, somewhere between a 23 and 91% increase over control populations. Interestingly, they showed a lower association between psychosis and and ankylosing spondylitis and rheumatoid arthritis where there was either a 28 or 35 percent reduction in risk. The question is, amongst all your patients with autoimmune and inflammatory disease, how much psychosis do you really see? I gotta say, in my practice, I really don't see many. I certainly can't compare to the numbers that were seen in this meta-analysis of 27 studies, but is this p-value fishing or is this real? Again, I can't say. I'm not surprised that psychosis patients have a myriad of other problems, but would that be a whole lot different than the general population? I don't know that I believe it, but it's for you to consider in your assessment of these patients. An interesting study comes out of Australia where they had an early arthritis clinic that studied the delay in referrals from symptom onset to GP referral to referral to the rheumatologist to referral to actually receive a TNF or, or biologic, I'm sorry, non-biologic DMAR therapy. Um, again, they studied a large cohort of patients and what they found was a significant delay from symptom onset to rheumatology review, meaning rheumatology evaluation, of 26 weeks. I find it surprising because most of us think we're doing a really good job of early diagnosis and, and early treatment because patients are being referred earlier. Well, in my experience, the referral is really related to how open your schedule is. If you have a six-month wait time, you're not getting referred to anyone because you're not marketing yourself as an early arthritis doctor. 
However, if you're seeing patients within a week of their being a calling in for any reason, you're likely to see a lot of early patients. Well, in Australia, again, it's a significant delay. It turns out that the most important part of this delay was due to patient delay in seeking help. It was almost two months or more before they sought help from their GP and then referral to the, 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 the specialist came after that. GP delays were associated with low disease activity um, and those who are socioeconomically disadvantaged. We know that uh, being younger in a lot of populations um, equates to not seeking help for musculoskeletal symptoms. So I think that the whole issue of referral still merits significant attention uh, and maybe better promotion of rheumatology services. What was seen in their study was that patients seen within 16 weeks uh, were more likely to actually be uh, treated better. An interesting study looks at early RA patients um, from, this is from an orthopedic journal that looked at MRI outcomes in uh, RA patients. From a clinic of 156 early RA patients, they found 76 patients who had achieved remission at one year. And they looked at the MRIs done at baseline and during the course of therapy and then at one year. And they showed that despite being in clinical remission, the majority of patients who were in remission still had evidence of MRI inflammation. Now we know this to be true. Other studies that look at those who achieve um, definition of DAS or Boolean remission or ACR-ULAR Boolean remission or CDI remission still do have residual swollen joints. Uh, so this is not surprising. But the numbers they came up with were 43% had synovitis and 39% and still had bone marrow edema, 9% with tenosynovitis. Um, they did show that a third of the patients did progress um, to develop erosions, and this was more likely to occur in those who had um, uh, bone marrow edema. Our friends at Helio reported that a in a study of GPA patients that compared adults and kids with GPA, 200 plus kids versus 5,000 adults, and guess what? Kids had worse disease. They had more, 30% more hospitalizations. They had, kids were more likely to have two to threefold higher rates of leukopenia, neutropenia, and hypogammaglobulinemia. Just like lupus, these kids are probably more at risk uh, and should be worried about more. Um, an interesting study comes from an NIH-funded, uh, the Rochester Epidemiology Product that looked at patients who developed low back pain in Olmsted County. Uh, and this studied patients between 1999 and 2003, and specifically, they looked at a very high number, 5,300 patients with back pain. Of that number, a surprisingly low number, 124, had new onset inflammatory back pain, and you know how to define that. After 13 years of follow-up, only one-third, or 31% of the inflammatory back pain patients went on to develop uh, spondyloarthritis, proven spondyloarthritis. 30% uh, um, therefore will develop spondyloarthritis, but a higher percentage will not progress to spondyloarthritis. So 43% will not progress to spondyloarthropathy. This may explain why the prevalence of inflammatory back pain is high at three to 6%, yet the prevalence of spondyloarthritis is, is at a fraction of that, somewhere between 0.4 and 1.3%, according to Michael Ward and his co-authors. Interesting stat came out this week about testosterone use. I'm sure you see a lot of this amongst your patients, but what was interesting to me was that between 2001 and 2011, 
T-cell centers, people getting on this bandwagon, making money off of uh, injecting men and with, with testosterone. The number, the amount of testosterone use in the United States rose threefold. I mean, it tripled in a 10-year period. And this was mostly done in men who really didn't have a good reason to be on testosterone. However, in 2013, there were two sort of major studies showing that testosterone use was associated with higher rates of myocardial infarction and CVAs, suggesting that, well, gee, you might want to think twice about this. Well, interestingly, from that date onwards, testosterone use dropped by 50%. So there still is a lot of this out there. It's still not necessarily being done with the right, um, for the right indications, um, but I think advising patients that there is a risk associated with testosterone would be the smart policy going forward. So. Um, regarding the fate, that's one of several stories that tell you about the fateful outcomes of, of people. Uh, we, there's an interesting study on the fate of seronegative rheumatoid arthritis from Tuliki Soka and colleagues in Finland. They actually had over a thousand patients in their early arthritis clinic from one center. Uh, and of that early arthritis patients uh, who had early rheumatoid arthritis, I should say, 453 of them were seronegative. And they looked at the 10-year outcomes in that population. And I think that they were surprising. Um, they found that 3% either converted to seropositivity and went on to develop uh, erosive disease. Only about 11% remained unclassifiable as seronegative RA. So you could say that only 14% remained seronegative RA, and that's low compared to, I think, what most of us see in the United States. But what happened with the rest of their population was sort of surprising. And that includes that 16% went on to develop and be reclassified as polymyalgia rheumatica, 10% as having osteoarthritis, and a third of their patients went on to have a spondoarthropathy, psoriatic arthritis, reactive arthritis, spondyloarthritis, or ankylosing spondylitis. So again, and then there's a, a hodgepodge of one, two percent of you know GCA and and, and and other diagnoses, including gout and pseudogout. But they were relatively low, single-digit low percentages. So the idea here is that not every patient with seronegative RA remains a true RA patient, and that reconsideration of diagnosis is paramount in the longer you manage such people. Um, an interesting study comes from um, a cohort uh, in the UK that looked at refractory RA using the uh, British Society of Rheumatology Biologics Register, uh, where they have thousands and thousands of patients. And amongst their 13,000 um, um, RA patients that are taking a biologic that were enrolled, they were able to classify 867 of them, or 6%, as being biologic DMARD refractory. They define that as those individuals who went on to require a third biologic DMARD. Uh, so they have some very interesting data about what the prescribing practices were. This was not a controlled protocol. This was whatever the doctors wanted to do. Uh, early on, um, you know, the vast majority, 60% went from a first TNF inhibitor to a second TNF inhibitor. Later on, um, they were more likely to switch to another MOA, looking at two different time frames, 2001 to 2007 and 2008 and onwards. And these time frames actually showed significant differences in physician prescribing behavior. What they did show was that early on, um, six and plus percent, six point seven percent in that first cohort actually had refractory disease, and it took them almost eight years to achieve that. But in the second cohort, it was only four point eight went on to develop refractory disease, but they got there in a lot faster time frame, two years, suggesting that there was more switching between the classes um, as doctors have gotten more aggressive over time. 
after they got their first and second TNF inhibitor, the vast majority would use uh, rituximab, but that was mainly in the first era. In the second year, they used much less rituximab, 83% versus like 15%. And then after rituximab in the UK, tocilizumab was the most uh, next best used drug, and then abatacept close after that. What the um, authors correctly state is that some of these patterns of use more reflect the introduction of those new agents into the marketplace rather than a true preference of one drug over another. Interesting study about rizankizumab. Rizankizumab is an, a selective IL-23 inhibitor. Uh, it has now been studied. There are other IL-23 inhibitors. Tremphia or Giselkimab is approved in the United States uh, for psoriasis, um, and, and these are being developed in psoriasis and the spondyloarthropathies. This spe specific drug was actually studied in ankylosing spondylitis patients, a hundred and I want to say fifty nine patients who are biologic naive and never received a biologic and were given either placebo or one of three different doses of rizankizumab as an injection and guess what at their at week 16 I think was their endpoint uh, could have been week 20 week 12 but this was a 24 week study their first endpoint was I think week week 16 the results were the same only about a quarter of patients responded and basically placebo did as well as the drug and it didn't make a, uh, any difference what dose of drug you were on so that's sort of surprising data that this IL-23 inhibitor doesn't work. We know that IL-23 inhibition works great in psoriasis uh, and psoriatic arthritis, um, and that 1223 works obviously well in psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, um, and actually has shown good effects in patients with um, enthesitis. Um, so again, 1223 as a target may not be ideal for patients with ankylosing spondylitis, nor spondyloarthritis, but we need more studies on this. There are studies going on with other agents uh, looking at this. Hydroxychloroquine, as you know, has been a big issue for many of us. We're looking at these new guidelines from the ophthalmologist that look at ideal body weight prescribing um, and worrying about doses greater than five milligrams per kilogram of ideal body weight versus actual body weight where a high dose is greater than 6.5 milligrams per kilogram as a total daily dose. Um, they showed in a very large UK database tw amongst 21,000 new users of hydroxychloroquine that 37% um, of patients with ideal body weight, 37% of those with um, normal body weight and 44% of obese patients were being overdosed, meaning over those limits. But then when you apply actual body weight, it's 53% of normal and 10% of obese patients were being excess dosed with hydroxychloroquine. This is more likely in women, as you know, if you're not paying attention, those, those thin, um, frail uh, women under 120 pounds a day, if you're using usual doses of hydroxychloroquine, you may be in trouble with actual body weight dosing. So pay attention to that. We, again, whether these guidelines are correct or not remains to be seen. I'll end with two interesting things. One, you should look at the, um, Maddie Feldman's blog on prescription drugs and the effect on access to biosimilars in the United States. She goes into how drugs are sold, how they're priced, what the involvement of pharmacy benefit managers is. It's an eye-opener. It's a great read and something you should really understand if you use biologics or are considering the use of biosimilars. Lastly, there's a great meeting, uh, set of meetings coming up uh, on um, in September, uh, excuse me, in 
in July, August, and September. Um, these are being run by Arthros. I'm involved with Arthros in establishing good uh, state society educational meetings. We have regional meetings going on in Chicago. We're calling that the Great Lakes meeting. We have a great meeting going on in Nashville. So Chicago is going to be on um, July 28th. Uh, Nashville is going to be on August 18th. We have a great meeting in D.C. That's called the Capital City meeting. Um, on August the 11th, August the 18th is the Music City meeting in Nashville, and on September 29th, the Down Easter meeting in Boston. Fabulous faculty. Uh, I'll be uh, moderating the first program where our faculty is myself, Artie Cavanaugh, Kevin Winthrop, Michael Weinblatt, Joel Block, and Andreas Reif, I believe, on that faculty. You can go to the arthros.org website to register for any one of these meetings coming up in the next few months. That's it for this week on RoomNow.com. We'll see you next week.